Welcome to part two of this episode on hidden risks. As in the cautionary tale of the lighthouse in part one, risk can come from unexpected sources. It can seem obvious in the rearview mirror, but it's not always so easy to spot these risks in real time. Some of the current risks have remained hidden because it's been cheap and easy for companies and governments to roll over debt for the past decade and a half. Other risks have gone unnoticed because leveraged bets just kept making money year after year. In part two of this episode, we continued the discussion with two more experts. John Cochran is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level. Robert Armstrong is U.S. financial commentator at the Financial Times. Silicon Valley Bank may have been the canary in the coal mine, signaling a new regime of risk. Now the question on everyone's mind is, how many other problems are lurking in the financial system? Rob Armstrong has an answer. Silicon Valley Bank and a small handful of other banks were extreme examples of balance sheet mismanagement that made them very sensitive to the changing rate environment. But there is certainly pressure on everyone. In other words, I don't think we're going to see, and I don't think we have seen, a rash of bank failures. But what happened with the failures of SVB is symptomatic of pressure that all banks are feeling. So what's the next shoe to drop? Well, one answer that at least deserves attention now is commercial real estate for two reasons. First reason, mid-sized banks like Silicon Valley Bank depend very heavily on commercial real estate lending on the asset side of their balance sheet. And after the scare at Silicon Valley and the pressure they're seeing on their deposit costs and the fall in value they're seeing in their long-term assets on their balance sheets, they are all going to pull in their horns a little bit, be a little bit more conservative. And this will have an impact on their tendency to make loans into commercial real estate. At the same time, commercial real estate borrowers, what with higher interest rates, are seeing the value of their assets go down too. So they're kind of getting a double whammy. Their lenders are getting more conservative and their own assets are getting less valuable. So the ones, the commercial real estate entrepreneurs and investors who are the most exposed to those two things that need the most funding and had the most perhaps overvalued or highly valued or highly leveraged properties are going to come under pressure. So one question we're asking is, what is going to happen to commercial real estate values, you know, in the next 12 or 24 months? And what's going to happen to funding of commercial real estate assets? I think there's going to be some pressure there. Demand has dropped due to the work from home trend and continued rise of e-commerce. A number of firms are also expecting to downsize their workforce, lowering the need for space. This drop in demand has combined with an increase in supply of commercial real estate space. Given the long lead times for property leases and construction, income and valuations are just starting to get hit. This is all very bad news for regional banks, which have high concentration risk to commercial real estate as a whole. Loans held by regional banks have soared over the past decade. 
These small and mid-sized banks depend on income and valuation of commercial properties, both of which may decline. With the Fed tightening its balance sheet, liquidity is also decreasing. Does that mean we should be concerned about the potential for a broader credit crisis? John Cochran knows the difficulty of foreseeing a crisis. So I think the way these things work is that that stumbles along until something bad happens. Now, it's very hard to predict the future and, and scenarios are hard, but usually a crisis comes about when there's something horrible that happens and then you discover that you were closer to the edge than, than, than people run. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank was, it turns out, insolvent for a long time. And then one Friday afternoon, everybody decided, let's go get our money. So it's kind of hard to tell when does the run break out. The U.S. is no stranger to financial crises in the modern era. But are regulators learning from these events to make future crises less frequent, or at least less extreme? No two crises are ever exactly the same. But the lesson of protecting depositors certainly seems to have been heeded. Rob Armstrong wonders if that is a double-edged sword. In the last two banking crises, depositors, uninsured depositors in American banks were also protected. So in the SNL crisis in the 80s and 90s, Continental Illinois and etc., depositors were protected by the government. In the great financial crisis, uninsured depositors were protected by the government. So the, the fact that SVB's depositors, and specifically their uninsured depositors, have been backed by the U.S. government is not a historical anomaly. But I think the question of moral hazard stands. In other words, if word gets out that the government will always back up depositors and that your money is at zero risk when you put it into an American bank, will that remove a kind of market discipline from the system. Of course, the same is true of sovereign debt. Governments can experience similar credit crises, and the consequences can be much greater. Let me give you a scenario that I, I worry about. Suppose China blockades Taiwan, all Pacific trade comes to a halt. This will mean a massive financial shock, a massive economic shock, financial shock. What will our governments do? 10 trillion of bailout everything right, left, and center, and stimulus, and so forth. And this time, they'll also be borrowing money to finance a looming war. So what, you know, what happens when the U.S. government goes to the market and says, we need $10 trillion of, of money, not just $5 trillion like last time, and Europe is doing the same thing? Well, that, that could be the time when markets finally say, and how are you going to pay this back? And then interest rates rise because people don't want to give the government money at, at the current low rates. And, and you can see bad stuff happens from there on in involving interest rates, financial repression. That's the, the kind of event that I think could spark a crisis. So what you need is you, you need gas in, stored in the basement and you need a spark. So we've got the gas stored in the basement and an unsustainable debt situation. And then you need a spark, and I don't know what that spark's going to be, uh, but that's the kind of event I worry about. We've already seen a few sparks in the US. In Europe, Credit Suisse may be a different kind of catalyst. 
the Swiss government did something unexpected when the bank was on the verge of collapse. And it has to do with the firm's additional Tier 1 bonds, known as AT1 bonds. These bonds are sometimes referred to as loss-absorbing bonds, and even more informally, COCO bonds, or contingent convertibles. No matter the name, all of these bonds are expected to have higher risk and higher yield than many other types of issues. As institutional investors reached for yield over the past decade and a half, they acquired quite a lot of these bonds, especially, it appears, in Europe and Asia. What unfolded with Credit Suisse 81 bonds is still being teased out. There's a whole separate set of questions surrounding the collapse of Credit Suisse and the acquisition of the remaining pieces. What is particularly worrisome in that case is the fact that in the resolution of Credit Suisse, a special class of bondholders known as COCO bondholders or AT1 bondholders were completely wiped out and the equity holders got something. And what's kind of worrisome about that is that the kind of loss-absorbing bonds, these AT1 bonds or COCO bonds, it wasn't clear that they were actually, should have been behind the equity in the capital structure. And the Swiss government sort of threw its weight around in this case, protecting those shareholders to a certain degree. And does this mean that loss-absorbing bonds now have to carry a higher risk premium because in a failure type of situation, it's not clear what priority they have in a bankruptcy. I think the actions of the Swiss government somewhat threw that market into question and into turmoil. So that's an important issue. And it's particularly important because in Europe, Banking is so such an important source of credit relative to the entire credit market as compared to the United States, where we have a much deeper and wider bond market to provide businesses with capital. Banking is more important in Europe, and an important part of the structure of the European banking system is these loss-absorbing bonds. And so there is an important question about whether that market has been thrown into turmoil and in general, the way bank resolution and bank capitalization in Europe works. Credit Suisse was the first real test of these bonds, which were developed in response to the global financial crisis. It looks like the largest banks of China have significant exposure to AT1 bonds. They've also been facing a supply glut of commercial space if China's banks spiral into a credit crisis that the government cannot quickly resolve, how might that affect the global economy? It's hard to imagine, almost as unthinkable as a default of the US Treasury. But these are exactly the kinds of risks that investors should contemplate. Let's go back to my scenario of a real catastrophe, you know, something like a an invasion, another financial crisis, a time when the, our government says we need to borrow a lot more money and markets are not willing to roll over the current debts. You know, you could get that kind of thing. You could get being forced to hold government debt one way or another. You could get a forced conversion, a rollover, a haircut, that sort of thing. Our, our government could 
choose to do that. Now it's a political question when you have an economy in freefall and Congress is saying, well, we're, we're either going to send checks to needy voters or who may be actually needy, or we're going to roll over the debts of Wall Street fat cats. I wouldn't trust that Treasury debt will be completely unimpaired. Now that, you know, that would also come with some sort of wealth taxation, you know, grabbing the wealth one way or the other thing. So, so that kind of unpleasantness could happen for the U.S. Now, we have the choice to inflate it away as well as default, which is something that is more likely for the U.S., but just as unpleasant for bondholders. You know, you just had a default. If you are holding on to long-term U.S. government bonds, you had the economic equivalent of default. You are going to be paid back in money that is roughly 15 or 20 percent less valuable than what you thought it was going to be when you paid your bonds. That's how you know, we default through on debts, our government defaults on debts by inflating them away. And that could certainly happen again if we get into a situation where, where bond markets just don't want to give the government that much real resources. Does this economic equivalent of a default make the potential of a technical default in U.S. Treasuries more or less alarming? The debt ceiling quagmire is looming in the not-too-distant future. So I think the worry here is that the brinkmanship in Congress, because we've had the good fortune to get the deal done in the past, will only extend further and closer and closer to the midnight hour. And that this might, by mistake almost, lead to a technical default by the United States. Now, I think ultimately the country will pay its bills, but even a confusing few hours or days in which it appears that the sovereign debt of the United States is not being serviced promptly could be quite damaging to the financial system and could have quite far-reaching implications for the debt cost for the United States, for the stability of other markets. So many markets are, as it were, built on top of the treasury market. The treasury securities are the kind of the ultimate financing mechanism for so many other markets that a dumb temporary mistake could be quite meaningful here. And though I wouldn't describe that outcome as a sovereign debt crisis, it could be a mighty big mess that would need some mopping up afterwards. Judging by the volatility and yield curve of the bond market, it seems that interest rate risk is mostly priced in. That may not be the case for other asset classes, including equity. That's caught Rob Armstrong's attention. The bond market are showing inflation risk as live. I think the shape of the yield curve is telling us that a recession is fairly likely. I think that events like the ones we've seen recently within the financial system, the banking problems in particular, make the probability of recession higher. So I wonder if we aren't in for more volatility in the equity markets, which have been a little too resilient for my comfort in the last couple of months. That doesn't mean that there are not, you know, it, good values emerging in the, in the equity markets. It just means it's all the more important right now 
to make sure that you are diversified both within your equity portfolio and diversifying equities with fixed income and cash. And I think it's especially important now to know that volatility is going to be a feature of the equity markets in months to come and to have a plan in place for how you're going to respond to that volatility. John Cochran is a true believer of the efficient markets theory, but that doesn't mean markets can see into the future. They're certainly not clairvoyant, (laughs) and they missed a lot of things. So a lot of people say, oh, you know, markets aren't seeing inflation, don't worry about inflation. Well, markets didn't see inflation coming even as it was beginning to burn. And it's an interesting fact that the Federal Reserve, the markets, the survey of professional forecasters did not see this inflation come. But you go back in history and like that, look at the 1970s and 1980s. The long-term treasuries never saw inflation coming and they never saw inflation going away. What risks are there that people aren't thinking enough about? And I would say the risks of, of sovereign debt difficulties is still one that, that we take for granted. Now, everybody knows Argentina, you know, could always go one way or the other, but that the U.S. and Europe could run into rollover difficulties, could run into inflation breaking out even worse than it has. Sort of a general flight from what we used to think of as the safe assets into real estate, commodities, stocks, other, a general distrust of sovereign debt. That is, I think, the possibility that, that people aren't thinking enough about. Europe has that as well. The structure of the ECB is uh, really, that, that's one of the big questions that is in turmoil right now with the ECB is guaranteeing 20 countries' sovereign debts. They really haven't solved the problem of, of 20 separate feet who's, who can access the accelerator pedal and, and only one that can pull on the brake. Could Europe plunge into another sovereign debt crisis? There are certainly pockets of risk. What happens to Italy, for example, with its debt-to-GDP ratio of 160% as interest rates continue to rise or remain high? Plus the fact of Europe that Italian bonds are stuffed in Italian banks and Greek bonds are stuffed in Greek banks, so each country kind of has its own banking system as a hostage, and then hoping that the ECB will come up and print up enough money to stop the whole thing from exploding. That's an unstable system whose who's architectures it's not clear to me what's going on. I spot something that looks to me like trouble that I don't understand. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not sure anyone else understands. So that's what, you, you know, risks are about. Where is there something nobody, you know, could there be a bank somewhere in Silicon Valley that happened to have 90% uninsured depositors and a huge treasure trove of long-term treasuries that it doesn't mark to market? And just nobody thinks about that. The Federal Reserve, the stress test didn't even ask banks what happens when interest rates go up. That's like we're going to jump out the plane and we don't ask, did we put the parachute on first? So, so you can see a, a pattern of people not thinking about risks. Who, are people thinking about the risks of higher interest rates? Well, I think today they are, but all sorts of people who you would think would have been thinking about this for the last year were not. <laughs> So that's the general problem of the next risk is always one that nobody's thinking about right now. There's no question we've entered a remarkable time for markets, one that calls for careful navigation. 
I think the current environment is interesting in that while we're experiencing a lot of volatility right now and some scary events right now, what we're seeing in a way is simply a return to normal after years in which inflation all but disappeared. And partly as a result of that, interest rates were just extraordinarily low. And I don't think inflation is the whole story there. There is global demographic issues and there was issues with central banking that contributed. But we had this weird period where money was sort of free and that is ending now. And that is good for the long run. It means that risk premia are more rational. It means diverse, diversified portfolios work better now. There will be less need to make insane reaches for yield, but we sort of have to get through to that normal point and there will be this volatility and these terrifying events in the meantime. And so the challenge is don't panic while this transition takes place. Keep eyes on your long-term goals. And instead of merely running to safety, be opportunistic about valuations of assets that are suddenly becoming attractive. Sage advice. Long-term investors know that every crisis can be an opportunity, so long as they have the right combination of risk management and cash to take advantage of fire sales. The current risk environment should remind us that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Payment is now due for the decade and a half of easy money. The key is to remain vigilant but cautiously optimistic. Otherwise, we risk missing out when opportunities do arise. Thanks to our experts, John Cochran and Robert Armstrong, for their insights on hidden risks. Join us for the next episode of The Outthinking Investor, when our special guests will be David Hunt, CEO of PGIM, and David Rubenstein, the renowned philanthropist and co-founder of the Carlyle Group. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGIM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGIM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of M&G PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2023. The PGIM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGIM's parent and its related entities, registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.